0: Hello everybody! Wow! We're gonna start releasing some old world podcasts. I've been so busy trying to get everything up and running in this getting used to the new normal and I've been uh, excitingly and frantically and nervously and anxiously and all of the all of the leaves. I've been uh, trying to you know, set up a bunch of cool new projects. Not things that are just compromises of, oh, it's too bad we're in quarantine and we don't get the level of content that we're used to, but things that are actually adding value to the stuff that I put out there. And it's been super cool if you happen to be hearing this on time on May 24th, Sunday, May 24th, we're doing the first ever live Stand Up Science for my 40th birthday, which is actually May 25th, and we're just kind of using the, I'm not a big, uh, don't, uh, I'm, I'm a hair, I'm a hair too cynical and self-loathing to really care too much about my birthday, but I'll tell you what I do care about I love a good liminal space. I love a good kind of transition in life. I like the headspace, the mindfulness that comes from it, the creativity that comes from it, the insights. And, um, and so. Uh, for all of the negative things that might come along with, say, a horrifying pandemic or getting old and confronting your mortality, there's all these cool, interesting things uh, to talk about and explore and approach it with curiosity and uh, and use these moments to help us learn more about ourselves and this world, this existence that we find ourselves in. So, that's going to be the premise of my birthday show. And I can't imagine a better gift to myself than getting to chat with three of my favorite scientist buddies, Peter McGraw, Marty Hazelton, and Cole Marta, and, uh, and just have a cool, casual conversation and um and see where it goes i don't have like a super structured plan other than i just kind of want to talk about transitions in life more generally and and how they affect us emotionally and how we plan for our future and reflect on the past and i i, I mean that's just one of my favorite things to do and And talk about and so I just it's gonna be a free-flowing unstructured cool casual conversation and with this crowdcast platform by the way this show is free I'm not gonna charge you guys to come to my birthday party you kidding me but I'll tell you what I will do I'll use my birthday to coax you guys into checking out a thing that I'm passionate about I got no shame in that if there's any opportunity that I can do to coax any of you into uh, uh, giving um, given the other things that I do a shot, I'm going to use it. And so, um, so if you haven't checked out one of my virtual shows yet, it's a perfect opportunity. It's free. And, uh, who knows? You might like it. You might check out more. I'm hoping to do them once a week, not just during this pandemic, but afterwards. It's going to take me a little while to build to once a week because I want to make sure that it's high quality and that I'm doing it right. But I am doing one on, in case you're hearing this late, one I'm doing, um, one on May 31st, or I should say, first of all, I'm doing one on May 31st for, uh, for a covid update what have we learned over the last few months since i started doing putting all this pandemic i have nina pfefferman coming back in i've been taking a course on infectious disease and i believe at the time that i'm recording this the professor uh, from the great courses course on infectious disease will be joining us and i i have another um past uh guest uh, actually long story you haven't heard the episode because i accidentally deleted one of my favorite episodes that i recorded in all this but i'm having her um join us jessica brinkman so bunch of cool guests talking about that on may 31st you might have questions you've seen this stuff on the news you hear scientists are saying this well the data says this well if you look at the numbers well this is just common sense and everyone's got their own take on what science is is it a hoax is it a conspiracy what do we really know about these things what about the economic factors all these are really um uh, you know, things that are um d- uh, uh, are a part of the conversation, um, you know, and and I know uh many don't get a chance to actually reach out and ask a scientist about this stuff. So here's your shot. No matter what your uh, political leaning or or belief about this or or um just thoughts about um. Uh, whatever. Uh, you, you watch the news and have questions of your own. Now you have a chance to ask them of the scientists in real time. So check that out if you want. If you're hearing this late and you're like, oh my goodness, I missed out on Shane's birthday. The cool thing with this Crowdcast platform is one, you get to interact live and ask your own questions, but two, If you aren't available at that time, they are available for replay. I'm not ever making them a Here We Are podcast because... People are paying for these, and they're an exclusive thing, and and doing it live is a huge part of the fun. But if you go on and register, like I said, the 40th birthday one is free, Um, and other ones I've I've been bumping down the price to $5 afterwards for the replay, Um, so you can always get the replay of these. And if you support me on Patreon, you get all these things that I do. For five dollars a month, or whatever you want to contribute, maybe you want to bump it up a little more. Um, but uh, but regardless, um, you're you're keeping um, you're keeping my team working through all of this, and you're getting all of the live virtual events that I do for. Less than the price of a single virtual event. So there's a huge incentive now for you to go on Patreon um, and follow me on there. So I hope you'll consider that. Also, getting first peeks at this podcast. Ad-free. Ad-free. Intro-free. As soon as they're edited. Sometimes, maybe even months before they're actually released. On Patreon.com. we've had you guys have wanted to see more kind of incentives more vip sort of privileges on patreon trying to give them to you another thing that we're working on doing is is getting a chat form set up on uh probably discord for here we are fans so that's everything we got going on i hope you'll join me you guys are awesome sorry for the long-winded intro i hope you found it uh entertaining and and are interested in the things that I'm doing and if you're a new listener and going wow does he always talk for 9 minutes before the podcast even starts why the heck would I want to hear that I don't blame you head on over to my YouTube none of these intros and right now they're ad free as well and even when there are ads they're going to be the short YouTube ads catered specifically to you so if you go and follow me on the youtubes you'll get uh the ad free intro free recording you'll get to see us and there's highlights you'll get to see my comedy web series all that fantastic stuff Shane, I want to do something for your birthday, but I'm not available for one of these shows and I, I don't have the money to support you. What can I do? Well, you can hop on YouTube, leave some comments, hit that like button. Um, go and, and comment on this podcast on whatever app that you're using it on and write a nice review. And I would very much appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Thank you very much. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today I'm having another fun adventure. I just got to Tucson and I was fortunate enough to line up this podcast today. I'm at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. I'm talking with research conservation scientist Kim Franklin is joining me today. Kim, how are you?
1: Good. Thank you for having me.
0: When did you find out you were doing this podcast? Like two hours ago? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We're just kind of winging it.
1: Yeah. This is fantastic. Well, which is
0: great because we're talking about bees, right? Yeah. Bees. Bees, wings. All right. Winging it. There's a pun in there somewhere. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) um i have better jokes than that we'll see if i make any of them today okay (laughs) um so so talk a little bit um about about what you do here and why why do you do it here at the uh, desert museum
1: yeah so my background is in entomology which is the study of insects and right now i have i have initiated a long-term project on bees so we are in tucson arizona which is one of the world's bee hotspots, meaning that there are more species here in the Tucson region than anywhere else in the world, with the exception of some deserts in the Mediterranean region. So so we have an incredible diversity of bees here. And you'd think, given that diversity, that we would know a lot about these bees, but we don't know a lot about these bees. And so um, we've just completed actually the first three years of what I envision will be a multi-decade study on these bees.
0: Hmm. So uh, everyone always talks about these honeybees. Honey Everyone's bees. crazy about the honeybees, but you don't yeah. hear about all the other uh, the other bees out there. Oh, no, right. Why are the honeybees the most popular? Just because of honey, I suppose. But are are they? Mm-hmm. Are they like the major players out there or, or yeah. are, are the other, um, are the other species more, uh, more, uh more populous and.
1: Well, um, so the honeybee is a really important bee species. It's only it's one species of probably 20,000 species of bees in the world. Hmm. And it's a domesticated species. So it's domesticated, meaning that it's like, you know, cows are a domesticated species or corn is a domesticated species. So it lives with humans and it's unlike all those other bee species in that it's highly social It it lives in a colony, right? The honeybee has colonies and there's a queen. There's division of labor. You can pick up those colonies. Um, there's, um, a whole, a thousand year tradition of beekeeping, right? So you can move these bees around, around the whole planet to wherever you need them. And it makes it, um, super versatile. Those, the honeybees basically work for us. Mm. Um, so Where? they are the best. No, they're not the best.
0: <laughs> well, I was just trying to... I was, I was hoping to get you to crap on honeybees but a little they, bit.
1: But. Well, I don't... I, yeah, so they're not my favorite bees, right? So honeybees I are figured. not even native to North America. Before the honeybees were brought to North America, every plant in North America that's bee pollinated was pollinated by a bee other than a honeybee. So mm. so they actually are here. Um, They're from Africa and Europe. It's the European honeybee that was brought over. And they are competitors with all these native bees, the ones that are native to North America. So they actually are um, in in some ways detrimental to our native bees, these honeybees. They also have brought a bunch of pathogens with them. And one of the um, questions, outstanding questions right now is, is how much the pathogens that are affecting honeybees are affecting our wild bees, our native bees. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, so honeybees are important in that they're very um, useful agriculturally. We can move them around to where we need them. Um, But the native bees that are here are excellent pollinators. In fact, in many, many instances, they're better pollinators, even of our agricultural crops, than honeybees are. And... um, there's just an amazing, beautiful diversity of them.
0: So when, when you talk about uh, the, the honeybees competing um, uh, with the native bees, are they competing for resources or are there like actual like bee wars? What's bee oh, competition yeah. look like?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, they're competing for resources. Okay. So um, one thing I, I like to ask people um, when I'm talking about bees to someone in, in the public, or I say, why are bees going to flowers? Do you know? Uh, do you know why bees are going to flowers?
0: Uh, uh, pollen, or, or or they're they're well, no, po- <laughs> pollen is what they get on them after the, the for bees go for nectar, right? For uh-huh. resources. Well, actually,
1: they go for both. You're right. They uh, go for uh, pollen and nectar.
0: Oh, the bees actually like the pollen. Yeah, I thought so what, the pollen what did they do was with just pollen? something that got on them, and then they and then they flew around, and then it fell off of them, and they were these kind of unwitting. Well, that's Um, true.
1: That happens. Okay. And they, they end up pollinating plants by accident, right? Mm -hmm. They're not in, they're not out there to help the flowers. They're not saying, Oh, I want to pollinate this flower, but they, and they accidentally get some pollen on them and then brushes off them. But the, the female bees, the mom bees are collecting the pollen Hmm. and these um, structures on their bodies that are essentially pollen baskets. We call them scopa. And why are they collecting the pollen?
0: <laughs> I don't have a clue. This is what... my very first time I've heard anything <laughs> like this. I've been wrong about bees and pollen my whole life, I feel like. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, they they feed the pollen to the baby bees. And so the baby bees um, are well, this is what this is what one of these native bees does. She emerges from the ground, say in the spring, when the flowers that she she needs to collect pollen from hopefully are blooming. She um, will first dig a nest. And so I say dig a nest because most of these bees nest in the ground. So they dig a nest. And at the end of these underground tunnels, they put little rooms, little cells. And then they go to these flowers and they collect pollen. And they make these loaves of pollen, pollen balls. And they put one ball of pollen in each cell. And then they lay an egg on top of each of those balls of pollen and they seal off the, the cell and they leave the egg to hatch and the baby bee to develop all on its own. Hmm. It's a completely different lifestyle, right? Than honeybees. So honeybees, um, the only one laying eggs, right, is the queen. Hmm. And then the, the worker bees are taking care of all those baby bees and visiting them again and again and again, feeding them constantly. Whereas these baby bees from these um, wild native bees are left on their to their own devices to to develop. The mother has done a great job by providing them with a, a ball of pollen to feed on and a, a safe, dry space to to grow in. But then hmm. they're on their own.
0: Hmm. So that's every other species of bee, other than the or for the most part. Well, anyway?
1: you know, I said twenty thousand species of bees or so. And there there are some other highly social bee species but very few the vast majority of bees are solitary so hmm. they're single moms huh
0: okay Is that I, yeah I had no idea I'm always uh, yeah, m- sp- my my grandpa was a beekeeper so I oh. always I always just pictured the uh, bees in hives I didn't know that they had underground um he- uh, homes <laughs> the homes living quarters <laughs> i I didn't know any of this and i I always uh yeah I always thought of them as a really so because I've had some researchers talking about like the waggle dance and everything before uh-huh. for for honeybees telling the telling the crew where all of the yeah. good pollen is out yeah. there and uh, and and um, amazing communication abilities so so these other species that are more solitary mm-hmm. they aren't doing any of that.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that they don't communicate with each other, but certainly we haven't studied their communication the way that we um, have studied honeybees. Honeybees have been a a focus of many, many um, scientists for their entire career, so we know a lot about the honeybee. Um, But there's all these other species of bees that we know much less about, and so they probably do communicate with each other, um, not to the same degree, because they're not cooperating. But they're communicating on some level with each other.
0: So, did all bees around the world originally uh, 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 originate from the same ancestor, or did or did bees evolve independently in different areas um, in the world? Do you Do you have any idea?
1: Oh, um,
0: I'm just curious so how go, they got everywhere.
1: Yeah. Well, if you you go way back in time, yeah. evolutionary time. And yeah, that you could find the ancestor to the modern, to the bee lineage. So bees actually are, you can think of bees as vegetarian wasps. So um, bees are essentially wasps, but they no longer feed the, the babies, their babies, um, uh, uh, meat. Uh, they're not carnivores the way wasps are. So wasps will collect caterpillars or other um, arthropods or insects to feed to their young. Whereas bees have stopped doing that. They, co- they collect pollen, which is also very rich in protein. So the, the young need protein, right? Cause they're growing and developing. Mm. Whereas the adults, they don't need so much protein. They are consuming mainly nectar to fuel all their activity. So bees are, are, you can think of them as vegetarian wasps. And then they um, started to diversify at the same time that. Flowering plants diversified, and so there was this coevolution between bees and flowering plants.
0: Hmm. Okay, uh, do do the solitary bees? Do they need the same kind of defense mechanisms as the honey bees? I I, mm-hmm. I would I would be inclined to think that a more social um, species would have like a more painful sting and and have yeah. have better defenses um, against something than a solitary.
1: You would be right.
0: Woo! Nailed it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, honeybees.
0: I that I just made up for my uh, for not knowing a thing about pollen or or. Oh,
1: no, you did very good with the pollen and nectar <laughs>
0: question. This podcast is just about me validating uh, <laughs> myself and what I know. Yeah.
1: So, honeybees do they have a powerful sting, right? Yeah. Um, because they have a lot to defend, right? They have that. Um, colony they have a hive and it may be filled with honey and baby bees and their queen and so they want to they're they want to defend that big stockpile of resources where all these solitary bees um, they're not going to sting you Um, they do have stings but they're not going to sting you unless you like grab one off a flower and you have it in your hand or something Mm -hmm. and some and i have been stung by solitary bees and it's it's uh it's nothing it's a very mild sting and it goes away quickly and unlike honeybees they don't on the stinger does not come out and so they um come out of the bee's body i mean so when a honeybee stings you it has a barb on the end of it and so you typically end up killing the honeybee dies Mm. these solitary bees don't die when they were to sting Hmm. but the sting um is not generally used on people for these solitary bees Hmm. so yeah
0: what are they defending against Out in the wild,
1: well, I would. They wouldn't. Um, they'd probably be using their sting against other insects or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Whereas honeybees definitely, um, are defending against larger, um, predators who might want to, you know, come in and consume all their honey. Hmm. Uh, Other mammals, right? Bears, you think, go in and eat all that honey, or, Mm -hmm. yeah, honeybees can be a. They're a pretty dangerous animal, actually.
0: How much? Morphologically, how how much different does a wild bee look, look? from a from oh, a honeybee? Yes,
1: I wish that we could show some images. So you should, you're
0: uh, you're just gonna have to paint a picture <laughs> for us.
1: You should go to um, the Tucson org and see some beautiful photography of bees. But they come in every color. And some of them have no hair whatsoever and look like wasps. And the other ones are extremely fuzzy. Like, um, you know, think of a bumblebee, only sometimes even fuzzier. Could be white or black or brown fuzz. Um, uh, there's red bees, blue bees, green bees, iridescent bees. Um, all different from the size of, you know, like a millimeter long to bees that are, you know, as big as your thumb. Hmm. So it's an incredible diversity of bees.
0: Do we know anything about why they're colored in in this way? Is it uh, mm-hmm. was there some sexual selection stuff going on there, or, or, or is it uh, is it a warning, or yeah. is it? I mean, the the classic honeybee, like the yellow and black stripes, like what's the <laughs> yeah. that doesn't it doesn't seem like it would hide you that well from no. Anybody. Well, that
1: would be warning coloration. the okay. the black on yellow. And a lot of bees do have white on black or other black on yellow and things like that. But um, I don't know if we know why iridescent green bees are iridescent green. It may be, I would have to look, we may have some ideas about that and and maybe someone looked into that, but I'm not sure. It could be that you blend in with um, the flowers that you're visiting or um, as sort of a camouflage type thing. So, but yeah, that's a that's a great question. What's I, this? Yeah, I'll look into that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i i like to I like to come into these podcasts do no homework of my own. You <laughs> come in here and then leave you with homework to do. Well, for, again, <laughs> I didn't no know that I was doing that. this podcast. Yeah, either, I didn't so. know you were either. This is I'm so happy this worked out. What's with the uh, What's with the fuzziness of of the bees? Is that just like yeah. it, it, is that Is that somehow It's like more pollen attaching Mm -hmm. and then the...
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's um, an adaptation for collecting pollen. So one of the things that distinguishes a bee is that they have branched hairs. So if you look at an individual hair coming off of a bee, you can see little branches coming off of that hair. And if you're not sure whether you have a bee or a wasp, that's one way you could tell the difference is those branched hairs. But yeah, they have um, hair for collecting pollen um, and they even have these specialized structures with special hairs for um, collecting pollen, these pollen baskets. And the the morphology of those hairs and those pollen baskets will change um, depending on which plants that those bees visit. So bees can actually be pretty picky. They won't go to just any flower to collect pollen. They um, will collect pollen from maybe if you're really picky, from just a few species within a single genus of plants, or maybe from um, a certain family of plants, but they won't just go to any plant to collect pollen. Hmm. So they're they're kind of they can be picky eaters. Some are generalists, and the honeybee is the the generalist of all generalists. It will go to just about anything, hmm. which makes it also a very versatile tool in agriculture. Right?
0: What's that one? I'm now picturing that that. Oh is it a bee? Maybe it's a fly. Shoot. I hope I remember. Um, flies it, th- are great pollinators th- too. There's this uh, there's this fantastic scene in one of the uh is it Planet Earth or light? One, one of the Attenborough things um where there is I think it's a bee that gets oh no. Maybe it's a fly. Um I'm thinking of this flower, flower and, and and then the flower like traps it and then it has to crawl out of this yeah. opening and then the flower sticks its pollen, pollen on, on it. its on its back. That's it's probably amazing. a Amazing.
1: Yeah. There are it's very um,
0: specialized.
1: There are these flowers that have evolved these pheromones, these compounds that mimic um, bee pheromones that will attract male bees to the flower thinking that it's um, a female bee and then
0: yeah guys guys aren't always the most (laughs) discerning out there and in the animal kingdom yeah no (laughs) Uh, sorry i cut you off but go on. yeah and
1: so then they get the pollen on them and then they'll go to the next flower and they transfer a little bit of that flower um pollen to that the next flower and so that's how those very specialized flowers get pollinated it's a very um tight relationship you know between a a particular bee species and a particular flower species Hmm. most of the relationships out there are are a little more open you know it's not quite so strict you don't have one bee species going to one flower species Hmm. because if you think about that's kind of risky putting all your eggs in one basket
0: sure yeah I'm trying to recall this really peculiar thing about the biology of, it must be, I imagine it's honeybees, and I'm curious Uh if the wild bees are similar, or if we know this, they have a different reason why they kind of are so social and have so much altruism is because of their relatedness is really peculiar um, compared to other species, right? I'm trying to.
1: It's called haplodiploidy.
0: Yeah, can you explain (laughs) that to people? And then yeah. I sorry if I'm putting you on the spot no. here and it's been a while since since yeah, you've had to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um but, but so it, it,
0: it's one of the is it's of of the uh hymenoptera. It, it's it's very particular to bees. Like I don't think anything else on on earth has the same kind of
1: sex determination. Yeah. Yeah um well it's not only bees hymenoptera have this form mm. of sex determination it's, it's um by sex determination i mean how you determine whether it's going to be a male bee or a female bee mm. and so it's amazing but the female bees have a lot of control over this and so if they lay an egg mm-hmm. and it's fertilized it becomes a female and if they decide not to fertilize that egg, then it becomes a male. So the males only have half the chromosomes, does that make sense, that the females have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the, probably the most amazing thing to me is that the, the female can decide to fertilize an egg as it passes through her body or not? Isn't that? I mean, that's hmm. to think of having that type of control.
0: I think a lot of insects actually do that particular thing, mm-hmm. and then I, and and there's even speculation that even humans are are possibly there's some environmental cues that are like kind of uh, possibly a priming um, priming gender. Uh, oh. uh, there's uh, yeah, there's weird stuff of, of like kings and so forth in the in the past have have often had. More sons, and not not just because uh, they were getting rid of females or whatever, but but they <laughs> they wanted because sons in in a in a really um, uh, well to do environment uh-huh. um, do really well because they can get a lot of females, uh-huh. but um, in in a uh, poorer communities tend to have slightly more females because females are always going to be reproductive, whereas poor men aren't are going to have a hard time being reproductively successful oh. so it seems like there's some environmental cues uh-huh. tuning into that huh. uh, in females so uh, uh so so yeah i think a lot of species do that but i I was actually thinking of um the way in which uh, the relatedness works within a hive isn't that uh-huh. it's not he- heplodipa uh, i was thinking of something else the how yeah, aren't they all so. like sisters or something it, yeah what is the
1: so when a, when a new um, honeybee um, queen, she's going to be a queen of a new uh, colony, mm-hmm. mates, she could actually mate with quite a lot of different males, and then she would retain all the sperm from all those different males in her body, and she goes off to start her new colony, and um, then... She will start laying eggs and fertilizing them and
0: <laughs> 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 she'll start
1: laying eggs, fertilizing them to you're create do- her first you're
0: doing fantastic.
1: <laughs> to create her first worker force. Yeah. So they end up being and the workers do often end up being more related to each other than um they are seventy-five percent related to each other than Than rather than like fifty percent, like we are with our siblings, right? But given also that she mates with so many different males, that's not always that's not Mm. always true. Mm. Um, but that is one that higher on average relatedness, the greater than fifty percent relatedness, is one reason, one um, hypothesis of why um this altruism developed within the the hymenopter so many times
0: that's what i was after Um, yeah and and that's and that i think is very specific to bees i don't think there's very many other species out there doing anything um quite like that
1: ants and and wasps hymen so um bees are a member of this group of insects called hymenoptera Ah. and so it's actually wasps bees and ants they're all just like versions of wasps, right? Bees are the vegetarian wasps and now the ants are the wasps that moved underground.
0: <laughs> yeah. Huh. yeah. I, I'm imagining myself now like three years from now trying to explain all this to another guest that, that I'll well, have and fumbling you know, over all ask of it. Me, Ask me to come back to, um, next week and explain
1: <laughs> haplodiploidy and, and relatedness again and I'll, I'll brush up between now and then. <laughs>
0: um, so I, I, was, I was curious because that, I mean that seems to the reason why I have read about it and it's been years obviously since I've uh, read about it and need to brush up myself uh, is is because it is this kind of um interesting possible explanation for the altruistic behavior so what I was curious about is in the in the wild species are mm-hmm. they using that same mating system or or is it an, yeah. w- w- what's the word again the
1: well, ha- haplodiploidy um, results in them being more related yeah. than um, typical. Right.
0: Okay. So do wild ones do that as well?
1: Yep. Well, and so in wild ones, for instance, so the the new queen, she's unmated, emerges from the ground, right? Mm-hmm. And oft- actually, usually the males will emerge first. And they're sitting there waiting, they're ready to go to mate as soon as those females um, start coming up out of the ground. And so the these new queens that are unmated, they come, um, they're not queens, these new um, female bees who are going to start their own nests. Um, they come up out of the ground, the males are there waiting, and then they'll be tackled by all these males. And actually, you can see the males if you're out sampling bees ever, um, the, the females are trying to work you know they're trying to go and get the pollen and and yeah that's the same nest. old but story there's males that are keep sure. attacking them throughout their the, their work and trying to mate with them yeah sounds so they familiar. Will mate with some number of males right and then they'll have that sperm within their bodies and then they will um lay fertilized or unfertilized eggs in their nests um, and so, the fertilized eggs will become the next generation of females, and the unfertilized eggs is the next generation of males.
0: So, they're born ready to mate? Well, they're when they're you think fertile about it, when they're born?
1: Well, they're, if you think about it, when they were born was when they hatched out their egg, I guess. Right. Right? And so, the female, their mother laid them as a little egg yeah. on top of a ball of pollen. They hatched out. And then they started eating that pollen and growing and eating pollen growing and growing. They, so they, and then they went through metamorphosis, just like a caterpillar does, right? Okay. So they had that whole period of development all happened underground. And they crawl out of the ground, uh, an adult, ready to go.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ready to hit the clubs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that makes more sense. Uh, yeah. So they, they at least got to... Uh, got to live a little bit before being harassed nice baby, by a bunch yeah. of dudes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Underground in a little dark cell.
0: <laughs> so how, in your work, how do you go about finding these wild species? It doesn't seem like the easiest thing to go track yeah. these buggers down.
1: We well, can always just look at flowers, right? Look at flowers and you'll you'll find bees. Right. But we've been sampling bees um, using these things called pan traps. Um, they're just little cups that are painted colors to attract bees and the bees come to these traps and they're trapped in them. And then we bring them into the lab and we, and we actually, we curate them. We, we put a a pin through them and we put a, a, a label on them that has all the information about where the bee was, what color trap it went to, the date, the, um, all the information that you would want to ask questions about that bee in the future. And we're creating this collection that we'll be able to use to ask A lot of different questions because really what we want to do is contribute to the conservation of bees. Mm. Um, that's, that's the goal. And so there's so many questions about, um, the ecology of these bees. So really I am in insect ecology. I'm glad that we've moved away from like the evolutionary biology.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm obsessed with evolution stuff. So yeah, I had okay. a lot of questions. No, yeah, it's it's all but very this, cool. I, I often I often <laughs> ask my guests a bunch of things that isn't specifically related to what they do. So <laughs> well, I apologize. Well, no, but no. let's get into your stuff specifically.
1: One of the things that is interesting about these native bees, these wild solitary bees, is that they're only active for a very brief period of the year, right? So they might come out of the ground and then have a very um, short lifespan of uh, a few weeks, you know, and in those few weeks, what they do is they um, build a nest and lay the eggs and hopefully ensure that the next generation is going to survive. Mm. So one of the things we want to know is what are the seasonal patterns of these bees which bees are active when and how does that change from year to year so for instance um you could find hundreds of a certain bee species emerging one year in august and then you next august You find very few, if any. And so, what is the normal range of variability? So, once we get an idea of what their patterns of seasonality are and what the normal range of variability is, then we might be able to detect trends in in their populations. How are their populations doing? Hmm. Um, And so, and that's what we want to get at. We want to see how climate change and how other environmental changes, habitat loss, um, the use of pesticides, et cetera, is affecting these bees.
0: So so a lot of wild bees would uh, be a little more specialist so they're kind of um uh, they're sort of being born around the ta- the time that there would be resources and and uh, mm-hmm. we, uh, hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we hope along the time that that these plants would want to be uh-huh. pollinated and everything else and then and then there's other plants that are getting pollinated at different times and run on different cycles and seasons and so yeah.
1: um so yeah, there's just so lots of, of
0: different wild wild bee populations popping up at different times exactly. through the year to pollinate all of the different plants uh-huh. rather, rather than a honeybee that's kind of generalized yeah. and always. Oh, I see.
1: Yeah, the honeybee can become active whenever temperatures reach a certain threshold any time of the year. And so um, these one of our questions is, as the climate changes, it's changing pretty rapidly right now, Well, the plants respond to the same cues as the bees. So if right now the bees are really tightly linked into the plants, right? They know when those plants are going to be blooming because they're being triggered by the same environmental cues. Um, is as climate changes, is that gonna is that tight linkage gonna continue or is there gonna be some mismatch and the bees emerge too early and the plants are not blooming or the the plants um do emerge um but the bees don't come out and so will the plants and the bees the phenology the timing of these life cycle events change and sync with each other hmm does that make sense
0: yeah so uh, so so you uh you come to life you go out there you get your you get your resources you get a bunch of nectar and then the the females collect their pollen for their offspring you do the mating thing you you um lay your eggs and then it's almost a whole another year that those eggs are just underground um yeah well developing or uh-huh.
1: well a lot of these will they um we don't say they hibernate we use the word diapause because it's a little different but they they develop right they're growing um the little larvae are getting bigger and then they winter comes or this um, they stop at some point because it's not the right time of year for them to come out. So maybe in the pupil stage. Um, so they go through metamorphosis and now they're uh, in the pupil stage and they'll just wait in that stage until they're triggered by the right conditions to come out. So maybe that condition is humidity or maybe it's um, a combination of temperature and humidity. But they could actually stay underground for many years, hmm. waiting for the right conditions. Very much like our desert annual flowers, um, that could they have seed banks that can last um, more than years, decades even, and they'll just sit there in the soil, waiting for the right conditions to germinate.
0: And and they're pretty resilient at this time in terms of say there's like some major record setting frost in arizona or something like that is that because they're because they're underground is that protecting them from all of the
1: uh uh,
0: uh, potential like extreme yeah um,
1: i would say probably most bees are pretty safe from a a hard frost because of being underground hmm. there are um so i keep talking about the bees that nest underground and that's the majority of them but there are a bunch of bees that nest above ground in cavities and holes they'll use holes that were um, created by other insects in trees or actually in the urban environment, they find lots of suitable habitat. And so they'll nest in, you know, a hole in the stucco in your house. So they're um, above ground nesting bees and maybe they would be more sensitive to to frost. I'm not sure. Hmm. A hard, a very hard freeze.
0: So if you're, if you're looking into some of these environmental and climate changes that are uh, that are influencing bee and and then also plant pollination hey, or, or populations mm-hmm. how, how are you teasing apart um, uh, uh, like what what comes first whether like the plants being negatively impacted and then that's negatively influencing the bees or if it's like the bees got some sort of disease or something like that and then that's negatively impacting the plants yeah. is, is there a way of teasing uh, that apart yeah
1: yeah, there's definitely a way of teasing that apart, but we're not there yet because we've, we've collected three years of data and that's what just the, just the beginning. So we're just getting started. And the other thing I should mention is that bees are really hard to identify to species. Mm. So I have an amazing team of volunteers here at the Desert Museum. They, um, are most of them are retired scientists. They're just an incredibly competent group of individuals and they can identify these bees to genus. So remember kingdom phylum, class order family genus species. Mm -hmm. And so they get them to the genus level, but then it's very hard to get them to the species level. And so one of the things we're working on right now is involving the community in this research, um, especially students. And so we're working with, um, community college students and high school students to, to barcode our bees. And that means reading a little segment of their DNA and the matching whatever that read is up to a this library of barcodes and see if we can find a match. And if it does, we get a species name for that bee. And so, we're at the point where we're trying to get species names on all these bees that we've collected, hmm. which is the... An important step in asking these questions about how climate change or other environmental changes might be impacting the bees.
0: Hmm. So, first off, who gets the job of painting these cups? By the way, is that just? Oh, do you want do you, that you, job? You, you just <laughs> can, can anyone paint it? Hey, how discerning are these bees? Are they falling oh, for anything, no. or do you need to be a great uh, flower artist cup? Uh, person, flower <laughs> cup artist. That's
1: yeah. one of the easier jobs. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they're not. I don't think they're that picky about whether there's a little, uh, you know, <laughs> imperfection in the paint or not. So yeah.
0: And and then and then you're doing the. So I don't fully understand where where are they getting sequenced first before that so goes out. to we too.
1: collect all the bees um, at different sites around the desert. They come to the desert museum, and mm. we create this this physical collection with imagine all these bees mm-hmm. in a like a museum drawer uh, if you can visualize that and then we give some of these bees um, some of our bees to students to mm-hmm. barcode and they barcode them at their schools so at high schools or at um, puma community college or at the university of arizona and we also are encouraging the students to collect bees at their own in their own communities and to figure out what kind of diversity they have there in their own backyards, and barcode those bees as well. Hmm. Um, and so it's been it's been really fun working with the students and having them be able to make a real contribution to this this scientific effort and participate in this. You know,
0: you ever get the wrong student and then they like really <laughs> throw off your data. I mean, if I would have got this project in high school, I think you might have been in trouble. You would have got some bad stats.
1: Yeah. We can we can catch those kind of errors. <laughs> There's little checks built in, so we could catch if something really doesn't make sense. <laughs> hmm.
0: um, so so then, what do you? Uh, is it is it just the process right now? Is just learning as much as you can, or are there actually? steps that you take as you're learning or noticing probably or you know potential red flags in a given area of like this mm. this population might be in trouble are, are there things that you do to uh help, to the help? yeah
1: well um so i wouldn't say that we're catching any right red flags at this time um but we are definitely learning a lot as we go and as we learn more about these um, the bee fauna, it can change sort of direct how we do our sampling and make we'll make changes in our study. But um, we already know a lot about how to help bees, some things that just about anybody can do. Mm-hmm. So anybody can plant some native plants. They need native plants. They don't need plants from other parts of the world or ornamental plants. They need plants from here because they're kind of picky, right? And mm-hmm. So they're not going to eat something they're not familiar with. So we are also planting pollinator gardens at different places all over the all over the desert, um, at national parks, or at the community food bank um, farm downtown, or at schools, or at the University of Arizona. And so we know that urban places can actually be great habitat for for bees. They just need some plants. Mm. They need some plants, and they also need access to some bare ground. So um if you think about here in the desert and what people's yards look like sometimes they frequently they will cover the entire yard with gravel then nothing can access the soil anymore not just bees but so many things live underground in the desert and so when you cover it all with gravel you limit access to all that habitat all that nesting space for all these insects and other arthropods hmm. so there's things you can do right now and we we know that those things are going to help bees and then um, some of the questions we have are a little bit more specific relating to how climate change is going to be affecting bees and how potentially pathogens that may be coming from honeybees and bumblebees may be affecting our native bees. And so we hope to get at some of those more specific things, too, with this long-term data set. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's tricky. People people always want whatever plant doesn't grow <laughs> in their they area. Want whatever for the they t- yeah, <laughs> had in
1: Wisconsin or whatever. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> always. But if you're in Wisconsin, then you want the cactus. Then you whatnot. want to grow Well, yeah. yeah, it's
1: harder going that way, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so do you think that this would be eventually as you as you learn more and and people uh, more people come to understand the huge impact on the environment that uh uh, that healthy or or poor bee populations could have and and um uh you know this is something that that potentially hurts everybody do you think that there will eventually be policies um put in place or like taxing people that that gravel their yards (laughs) or or something like that we're probably a long ways off from that
1: well, that's one strategy is to try and you know force people to do what you think. Is then
0: they'll by, just then they'll just want to do law, it more. Yeah. We
1: at the at the desert museum, um, you know, we try <laughs> to inspire people to live in harmony with the natural <laughs> environment by by ma- making them fall in love with the desert. Yeah. So that's, I mean. A big part of what I do is trying to um, connect people to biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And so working with all these students and and bees and showing them this world of bees that exists in their schoolyard, in their own backyard, is is a really huge piece of it. It's trying to um, open their, their minds to this other world, this biodiversity. It's right there for them to take a look at. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully, because they – um, find it fascinating or because they love it or just because they're ethical people they decide to not gravel their entire yard <laughs> rather than you know creating new policies but yeah that's, <laughs> oh, that's one
0: strategy <laughs>
1: yeah totally i work on invasive species as well um and so invasive species are the worst for bees right um, oh. and so that's um an issue I think about a lot, you know, how much do, is it education and how much do we try and uh, codify what um, these, these behavioral changes that we need to see in order to continue to have a healthy Sonoran desert.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I guess, um, I guess I was also kind of thinking along the lines of, if you know, you're uh, a, a farmer and you just ship in a bunch of, Honeybees for don't don't they do that sometimes? Yes. Just like ship in a bunch uh-huh. of hives on a truck and then let them pollinate and then they get back on the truck and then they drive yeah. to the next place or something. Is that is that something that is potentially really yeah. dangerous?
1: Yeah, it's, I think it's a little rough on the bees. I'm yeah. not a beekeeper, but um, yes, that is definitely a, a problem for the honeybees in that they. There's only so many colonies in the United States, right? And then we plant um, these giant monocultures. How we grow our food is kind of um, – how we grow our food is a big problem mm-hmm. for bees and, and, and biodiversity in general. Giant monocultures tend to be um, food deserts for most animals. Um, if you think about a giant monoculture of corn – it's an it's a amazing place if you're a, a pest of corn and that's what you want to eat, but it's pretty much a, a food desert to everything else. Um, and so we have these giant monocultures of fruit trees, of almonds, for instance. Um, and when they go into bloom, because there's nothing else in that habitat, just almond trees, we have to ship all the bees in to do all the pollinating. There's no bees there. Mm. Uh, and so because the rest of the year, there'd be no, nothing to eat, right? There's only food when those almond trees are blooming. So I think the, the figure is something like one third to half of all the bee colonies in the United States get shipped to California when the almond orchards go into bloom. Hmm. So you ship all the bees in and then as soon as the almond trees are done blooming, you got to take the bees somewhere else because there's no food left for them. So there's no, they can't stay there. Um, but that's, that is how they do it. They ship these honeybees across the country following the bloom periods of these different agricultural crops.
0: Hmm. But I, I guess then the, that's not at, at least necessarily um, the problem of them being an invasive species in that in that context because the, the problems oh, are yes. all, all of the wild bees have already all been. Well,
1: like when I said invasive species, I meant invasive plant species. Oh, I and see. I think you were thinking invasive bee species. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: <laughs> I was.
1: Um, no, I was thinking invasive plants. Um, so, yeah, I work also here in the Sonoran Desert. We have an invasive species called buffelgrass. And that's the focus of my invasive species work. And it is a grass from um, Africa. And it's an incredible grass, right? It evolved in the savannas of Africa under enormous grazing pressure, under frequent droughts and fire. And so it's you, it, these pressures produced this amazing species, grass, And it's here, and it's outcompeting all of our native species. Mm. And so when grass moves into the desert – you get these giant stands of buffalo grass, and you don't have any more wildflowers. And if you let it go long enough, even the perennial plants and cacti, they will die as well. And so it's the worst thing for bees um, because it's taking away all the bee food, flowers. Um, and so that's um that's what I meant by I invasive see. species being um, a really bad thing for bees and biodiversity generally.
0: So when you say there's a there's about you said 20,000 different species of bees. Mm -hmm. Would you say that there probably used to be more than that before before kind of human impact?
1: Well, scientists have been trying to figure out how many bee species have gone extinct. Mm -hmm. And in North America, there's, I think, I know there's at least one bee species that they've declared extinct. Um, And there are others that I think have become very rare. Um, And there may be others that they... Think are extinct, but you have to do a pretty thorough job of of searching out that species before you declare it extinct. Hmm. Hawaii actually has uh, several bee species that were declared an endangered species recently.
0: Really, uh-huh. they're declaring yeah. bees endangered species too. There's
1: a and, yeah. Some insects have actually been listed under the Endangered Species Act. So
0: so then d- then do they get some sort of protections? Yeah, the, yeah the they do. <laughs> so there is some policy that that uh, work yeah. it, in the mix. Yep. So so what happens when when a bee goes on the endangered species list? What what's the kind of well typical I, course of action?
1: Well, then any um well. You, One thing that happens is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is charged with developing a plan for the recovery of that species. Mm. And another thing that happens is whenever you want to make a change in the environment, you want to do some development or something, you have to make sure that you are not affecting that endangered species in a negative way. Either you don't get to do that development because it's going to have a negative impact, or you have to mitigate that that negative impact by creating habitat somewhere else or something. Hmm. And in a very, um, that's a nutshell. I mean, there's a, the endangered species act is a big piece of legislation and there's a lot to know about it, but just real briefly.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Arizona would you say Arizona is a great place to be um, studying insect it seems like there's probably a bit more diversity here than other places
1: oh yeah it's one of the best places it's amazing for insects and Mm. for many different groups of organisms it's incredibly diverse.
0: It's uh, it's it's so beautiful. The the, the drive here, I never get to see this. It's just incredible.
1: Giant stands of saguaros as you drive over the mountain.
0: Yeah, you you ever get you ever just like oh, I need to see a pine tree. You get sick. All these cactuses (laughs) are. You love them every day.
1: I I love them every day. Uh, All
0: right. (laughs) Somehow I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Um, So so what what do they do here at the um uh at, at uh, the Arizona <laughs>
1: desert museum <laughs> yes.
0: where am i right now i drove for 13 hours yesterday um so i'm a pit out of it right now um what what do um what do they do here in terms of uh, because I haven't, I just got here. I didn't get a chance to tour around yet, mm. um, uh, uh, to see anything. Uh, so we jumped right into this. Yeah. Uh, what do they do, do here in, in terms of informing people? Are there, are there like be exhibits and stuff like that set yeah, up that people can check out if they come visit?
1: Uh-huh. Yep. There's all sorts of exhibits. It's, um, we call, we call it the desert museum, but it's really, um, part museum. Um, part zoo and part botanical garden. I mean, the gardens are amazing. People come here just to see the cactus go into bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an incredible place, the museum itself for bees, um, which is one reason it's really fun to work here and study bees. But um, yeah, we have beautiful exhibits that are um, hopefully inspiring people to see the beauty in the desert. And we also do all sorts of educational programming, um, both on the museum grounds, then out in the community. And I think that you're going to interview Catherine Bartlett, mm-hmm. and she will be able to give you uh, the lowdown on all the different types of outreach and education programs that we do.
0: Um, do you ever, as a bee person, do you ever, you ever get in like feuds with like the beetle people or, or anything? No, like no,
1: that? I. Yeah. Actually, I work with a beetle person. <laughs> <laughs> also, you have to yeah. say nice things about them. Yeah, no, I think we um, <laughs> we all we appreciate. Most people who are in love with a particular group of, of insects appreciate other insects as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's few people I can think of that are so narrowly specialized <laughs> that they don't want to. <laughs> hear anything about your bees
0: there <laughs> they might just be a disagreeable person generally Gen- if, if, <laughs> that might
1: just be what's happening
0: there yeah <laughs> um uh, what other do you guys ever look for alternatives for poll- uh, so it, you have this area where these bees are really struggling to do enough pollination in the area to keep uh, whatever plants live are there we mentioned how fl- flies can also be good pollinators mm-hmm. are are there a, or or are there even like um just any, I mean, I've, i I remember reading about like robot bees mm. having to be built years ago. Or there, are there any? Yeah. Is it ever as extreme that like mm-hmm. uh, humans need to go through and and pollinate things?
1: Yeah, well, there have been instances in China where there people b- have become the pollinators. The bee population has crashed, and you can find photos um, and stories on people out there with paintbrushes doing the pollinating of the apple orchards, and hmm. um, I think it was mainly apple orchards. But here, I don't think that's happened here in the United States. And I, I do know that people are working on drones, little mini bee drones that would actually be able to do... Like little robots that do the pollinating for us mm-hmm. um, but i think it would be much more efficient and simple to just focus on um, creating healthy habitat and supporting bee populations yeah yeah well
0: uh, yeah, i mean uh, uh, all hands on deck here oh, we, 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 we don't we don't we don't if the robotics people want to help us out or <laughs> it's
1: cool regardless it, right it's cool <laughs>
0: um so what what do you um what do you see as the kind of biggest threat right now just climate change generally or or um or cities getting larger or mm-hmm. industrial farming or uh, potentially pesticides or or for bees you, yeah yeah
1: i think it's um you know Honey bee declines have been caused by the mix of all of that. But I think the most important thing is habitat, is just creating more habitat. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one thing we don't think about is how much land, how much former habitat we devote to growing food and how we grow that food. And so the way we grow that food is not generally – conducive to healthy bee populations so i think the one of the biggest things we could do is to try and incorporate bee friendly practices in our food systems and how we grow our food mm. um it's so we're so removed like the average person is so removed from where their food comes from right and so it's not something that's easy to see and it's very abstract but food production has a huge impact on biodiversity and there's a many many opportunities i think to to change how we grow our food to support more biodiversity
0: and i mean it seems like even even just from a um, human centric point of view it seems that uh-huh. having there there is a push to have more diversity in our in our own diets uh-huh. and just maybe not just eating corn <laughs> yeah. all, all of the time and it seems to have gotten humans in quite a bit of trouble um yeah. in, in the past in the early on stages of the agricultural revolution and mm. people started getting shorter and living shorter <laughs> lives and, and, and everything else because they're only eating one crop. Yeah. And if, 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 do you think that if maybe if there's just a um, uh, coincide push with, with people maybe trying to have more variety in their diets that would lead to more variety in farming and that would lead to Mm,
1: yeah greater demand for maybe different crops i mean yeah i think it's gonna have to come from multiple um angles i think that you know the way that we grow food isn't necessarily going to change if just people adopt more diverse diets that it's still um these giant monocultures which are essentially food deserts for everything except, um, the pests that eat those foods, Mm -hmm. that's, um, we got to figure out how we can change that and, and continue to make farming profitable and support our farmers and, um, yeah, you know, (laughs) I, it's not, um, something I have a whole lot of expertise in, in farm policy.
0: (laughs) Again, I like to ask (laughs) incredibly hard questions of things that that aren't your special. I think there's
1: just so much opportunity there though, that I think there's a lot of research showing that when you diversify farms, you build in these hedgerows of flowering plants that you get all these native bees. And then those native bees actually do a great job of pollinating crops Mm -hmm. and you can actually see increased yields. And so, Um, recognizing that, um, documenting that, recognizing that and showing, um, the people who grow our food that there's other, you know, perhaps more efficient ways to grow food that benefit not just themselves, but also biodiversity is, is a, is a direction that we should be pushing.
0: What is, just, just the last thing as we wrap up, one, um, how can people find out more about the, uh, about the Arizona Sonoma Desert Museum? <laughs> Thanks for wearing your name, today. Oh, by yeah, the way, good. so I can just read it right off, <laughs> right off
1: of there. Yeah, well, we have a website, of course. You can go to desertmuseum.org. You can also check out what we're doing with bees through the tucsonbeecollaborative.org. So it's a collaboration between the Desert Museum, Pima Community College, and um, University of Arizona. And then we have many other partners who are joining the effort. So those two websites, um, tucsonbeecollaborative.org and desertmuseum.org.
0: Uh, last question is probably the worst one I'm, okay. I'm going to ask it. We'll <laughs> see. Or it might be really fun. I'm taking a chance here. Favorite part of your job and a least favorite part, like the biggest mm. pain in the butt that you have to do. Uh, like if there's like some maybe there's some B that you just don't care for, some or or may, or maybe you get really frustrated with a with um, a policy thing or or getting through to. Um, Someone or uh, Mm. what? What's your what's your favorite day when you when you go out there? When When like I get to
1: you know when I get to be outside sampling. I get to be outside with the bees, collecting bees, or working with students outside. Or
0: I figured your favorite part was going to be answering emails. I thought that would be your
1: my my (laughs) inbox is my my least favorite part of my
0: job. (laughs) That's. That's probably everyone's least favorite part.
1: Yeah. well, So a lot of the work we do, the vast majority of the work that I do at the museum is supported by grants. And oftentimes it's, um, I like, I don't mind writing grants. Grants writing can be um, enjoyable, but, um, so much grant reporting so yeah it can be pretty tedious at times
0: <laughs> yeah you are not the first person to say that at all um well that's cool this is this is such a uh, what amazing weather to be out out yeah. and about in where did you come doing from work it, well i'm i'm i basically live on the road but i'm from wisconsin originally and i've made a uh I, i've made a commitment this year to be in the south for all of winter oh nice. and so i keep on getting the worst luck i i came through i was i was through um phoenix like right before new year's and they had this horrible cold cold snap at that time and then everywhere i've been going they're like man we've never had it this cold around here and uh but Bummer. <laughs> but it's still better than uh, the wisconsin right? weather it is it's yeah. absolutely what about the what about the summer uh brutal you used um, to it i You're love into the it? summer yeah? I,
1: yeah i'm cool with the summer I yeah
0: like the heat. i like heat too mm-hmm. All right, awesome. Yeah. Well, this is a very cool job that you have. Thanks for sharing is, what you yeah. do with us. Sorry for asking me a bunch of evolution questions earlier. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad we got into more specifically about what you do, and uh, yeah, and it was helpful. I, I did like to brush up on some of that stuff oh, that I sure, that I yeah. used to know. No, so thank no you. No worries, no worries. Well, thank you, Kim Franklin, for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks for is having wonderful. me. It
1: was a was r- a uh, pleasure and a surprise.
0: <laughs> uh, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. A podcast.
1: A podcast network.